Okay. We're all right. All right. Roll a clip. Are you going to hit the oh, intro? Wanna... Yeah, run the intro. You want to run the intro? Yeah, so we no. get like... I don't know. Oh, you, well, you like the song a little too much because you're always dancing when the <laughs> intro comes on. <laughs> That's because I know you, you're like, you're the first to talk, so I'm just like, I'm chilling. <laughs> you know, this guy's Harlem shaking over here. I'm like, man, I was just, I was just on video. I catch this guy doing the shiggy. <laughs> if you don't read the newspaper, you're uninformed. If you do read it, you're misinformed. What is the long-term effect of too much information? Information, information, I just need some information. I've been dying, I've been dying, is it lack of education? I've been reading, I've been reading without any transformation. I'm addicted, I'm addicted, is it overstimulation? Hey. Welcome to the success report. The success Hear ye, hear ye, come one, come all. You are listening to the Sixth Sense Report with Darnell Samuels and Joel Nikoloff. What's good, my brother? Ah, uh, I'm doing well, Joel, man. I'm excited about the next couple episodes we got coming up, especially the one we got today with the interview. Yeah, man, I'm, I'm excited too. Uh, you know, Trinity Western had this legal case and they lost in the Supreme Court. And, and I felt, as much as I've read a little bit about it, I was I'm relatively ignorant to what really went on. Um, so we reached out to uh, Dina Warren uh, and, and got her to kind of break down some of how we got here, the outcome, the good, the bad, well, mostly the bad. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and I mean, I say bad because she'll, as, as you'll catch... Um, she just demonstrates the the rarity and uniqueness to the circumstance, right? That right, so, I find concerning, right? So, so the, for the listener, you're getting the inside scoop into what really happened. Um, so, hopefully, you like what you hear. If not, or or you have any more questions, reach out to us uh, at sixcentsreport gmail dot com or sixcentsreport on on Insta- or, uh, Facebook and and Twitter. Uh, and and she'll give you her contact info uh, at the end of the show. Roll the clip. Okay, so Dina, why don't you give the audience a little bit of background on yourself? Sure. Um, so I'm a I'm a lawyer, and I do largely constitutional uh, constitutional law, human rights law. And given my own personal interests, I tend to focus on religious freedom issues or issues touching on religious freedom, um, largely in Ontario, although I have worked uh, out on the East Coast a few times as well. Um, so, I was just going to say, um, with regards to Trinity Western, how, how did you get involved? So I became involved in Trinity Western, <clears throat> excuse me, through Christian Legal Fellowship, I've been a member of Christian Legal Fellowship since law school, and it, the issues that Trinity Western case raises um, are of, excuse me, of great interest to Christian Legal Fellowship, given it's, it's an association of Christian professionals in the, in the law practice. And it, Christian Legal Fellowship wanted to intervene in the case. Um, which I can explain now, or I can certainly explain later, but basically um, wants to have a voice in the case. So Christian Legal Fellowship became an intervener, and I was involved as co-counsel on, with them in the Nova Scotia hearings and then at the Supreme Court. So that's how I became involved. 
So I'm, I'm guessing when you say Nova Scotia hearings, most people don't really know what you're referring to. Um, cause obviously the, the recent ruling came from the Supreme court. So, um, I mean, this is a bit of a, a layered question and we can walk through it a bit. Um, what do you think are the most important pieces of the background information? Um, let's say with regards to Trinity Western and how we got here. Cause I think whether it's public or even, you know, your article, um, on, on the T, um, uh, Gospel Coalition Canada website, you know, it's really difficult to really understand how we got here. Exactly. Um, you know, for some people, all of a sudden, they're just hearing about the Supreme Court case relating to this law school. So um, I think that's an excellent question. This has been going on for quite a long time, actually. Um, so Trinity Western, it's a private Christian uh, university in BC. Um, they have something like 40 undergrad and 17 grad programs and they wanted to, they have a teacher's college, a business school, and they wanted to add a law school. And so they started the process of probably about the planning process about 20 years ago. And in, um, 2013, I believe they got approval. So for the school, they had to have um, approval from the Ministry of Education in BC, and then also from all the law societies across the country. Um, instead of having that process done individually, province by province, um, there's a national federation called the Canadian Federation of Law Societies that has taken that on. So anytime there's a new law school, this federation looks at it all and says, yes, you're accredited. Um, we, we basically give you our stamp of approval. And then the law school can open, their students can then graduate and go and article in any province, which is just part of the process of becoming a lawyer. Um, so Trinity Western had approval uh, from the Federation, but then some provinces, uh, British Columbia, Ontario, and Nova Scotia, decided um, they weren't so comfortable with this. And the law society there basically said, we don't we won't accredit you, your law school, Trinity Western. So your students cannot automatically become part of our lawyer licensing process like every other law student can. And so Trinity Western challenged those decisions in each of those provinces. So when I say Nova Scotia hearings, what I mean is the challenge to the law society's decision in that province. Um, and in each province, there's, I mean, to, to keep it brief, there's a trial court and then there's an, an appeal court. And you start at the trial court. If you don't like that decision, you can go to the appeal court. And after you're at the appeal court in a province, the only other option after that is to go to the Supreme Court. And so what happened for Trinity Western is they had these three, three cases going on all at the same time um, with overlap. And they were successful in both trial and appeal in Nova Scotia both trial and appeal in BC and they lost both trial and appeal in Ontario. Mm -hmm. And then two of those three, Ontario and BC ended up being heard by the Supreme court last December. Is there any and reason the decision, why, sorry, I'm just curious. Is there any reason why yeah. Nova Scotia wasn't heard at the Supreme court level? Um, essentially that was a decision of the barrister society in that province. They had lost. And so they would be the ones to appeal to the Supreme court. Um, it's a smaller, 
legal community out there. It's extremely expensive to go to the Supreme Court. There were two other provinces that were likely going to go to the Supreme Court. They had already lost both cases. I'm sure that there are many, many factors contributing to their decision not to appeal. Um, And, you know, other provinces were kind of sitting on the sidelines, not making any decision. They were just waiting for all of these um, court cases to come to a conclusion as well. So, I mean, I think after having put that much effort into it, they just decided to wait and see what the Supreme Court would say. Yeah, and whether or not they were included, the Supreme Court decision is going to be binding for them regardless, right? So, Yes, uh, it, I mean, of course, the Supreme Court, it, 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 the Supreme Court decisions are binding across the country. There will be nuance and difference depending on legislation from province to province, but the principles that they apply and the way they interpret legal tests and terminology, that is applied across the country. Okay, so now that it's at the Supreme Court, is there any other, you know, let's say, background information with regards to the issue at hand being, you know, the, let's call it the religious covenant or the, or the covenant that the students, um, that, that, that is really the, the context of dispute? Sure. So the community covenant, that is the heart of the issue, exactly. The community covenant um, is basically an agreement that everyone on campus um, abides by during their time there. That applies to students, to staff, to faculty, and it applies to the time period that you spend at Trinity Western. Mm-hmm. And it's basically um, a communal expression of TWU's evangelical Christian beliefs. And so it includes things that they call their community to strive toward, toward, um, you know, developing fruits of the spirit and having generosity and contributing in a, in a positive and meaningful way to the community at large. And it also has some prohibitions in it. And some of those, um, the one at issue here relates to sexual behavior and definition of marriage. So essentially while you're at Trinity Western, Trinity Western asks um, all of its community members to abstain from sexual intimacy that violates um, the covenant of marriage, which is defined as the relationship between a man and a woman. So they they define marriage as an opposite sex union and any sexual intimacy outside of that union um, is prohibited. Or, I mean, students are asked, student staff faculty are asked to abstain from that. There's grace, obviously, in all of their uh, community covenant elements, but that's that's the nub of the issue. It's the abstaining from sexual intimacy outside a opposite sex definition of marriage, and and that is that's what's created this controversy. Okay. Um, okay. Good. So then, so does a moral standard create an equitable barrier to legal education? So like. To membership to legal to the legal profession. Well, certainly that's what the law societies would say. Their their argument um, was that as a public regulator, they have to always act in the public interest, and part of that public interest mandate for them is to ensure equitable access to the legal profession. And in their view, that starts at the admission in the admissions process to law school. And what they characterize the covenant as doing 
is excluding um, LGBTQ students from entering a program of legal education, which then prevents them from entering the legal profession. So that's certainly the messaging that went out on this um, from the law society's perspective and that opponents of Trinity Western um, argued very um, vehemently. So with regards to this, I mean, Trinity Western isn't only a law school. They're just seeking approval that, let's call it their course load, would qualify students to then you know, go through the professional side of, a, of uh, applying to be a legal professional. Would, with regards to the remainder of their you know, courses and, and, and schooling, has this covenant been an issue before with other professions or, or other scenarios? Yes, exactly. That, that is exactly what has happened in the past. Um, and I think part of the reason why the decisions were taken to the courts in Ontario, BC, and Nova Scotia, because Trinity Western has a teacher's college. And there have been variations on the community covenant, but it has essentially um, been in place from the start. Um, and the BC Teachers College uh, challenged the community covenant in the late 90s. And the suggestion at the time, the, their argument at the time, is that the community covenant would result in teachers who would discriminate in the public school classrooms. Again, because of the position on sexuality and marriage. Now, that case, that position and that um, exclusion by the BC Teachers College was taken to court, and Trinity Western has already been at the Supreme Court. They took the case all the way up to the Supreme Court, and in 2001, the Supreme Court released a decision in favor of Trinity Western, saying you know, there's no evidence that having this community covenant is going to result in discrimination in the classroom by the teachers. Um, they're protected by the Human Rights Code in BC and uh, religious free. They have the religious freedom to to do this, and there's no evidence of harm, and, and so on and so forth. So, in 2001, Trinity Western was successful in challenging that position by the teachers college and they have a they have their own edu school of education so moving forward into the law school presumably similar principles would apply and actually when i <clears throat> mentioned the the canadian federation of law schools earlier mm -hmm. when they were looking into whether to accredit trinity western's law school they actually struck a committee a special committee to investigate and report on and give a legal opinion as to whether there would be a public interest reason now in relation to the community covenant to deny accreditation. So essentially they were asking the question, does the 2001 Teachers College case still apply? Is it still relevant? Are those legal principles applicable to this case? And then the committee came back and said, you know what, there's no reason now why, it would, why we would come to a different conclusion than what the Supreme Court did in 2001 in regard to the Teachers College. And that seemed um, logical and persuasive. And that's one of the reasons why I believe um, 
why the Federation accredited them in the, in the early process and why many people were surprised that the BC, Ontario, and Nova Scotia law societies turned around and said, no, we won't accredit you because we, there was an extremely strong precedent from the Supreme Court and from only from 2001, which isn't that long ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's not like it was 1920 or something. Right. Exactly. So, so then what... What concerns you about how they came to the decision, like in regards to like acting in the public interest, religious freedom, the objective of equal access and diversity in the legal profession? Well, I, for, for me, there's, there are many things, and I won't get into some of the problems with legal tests because that won't be so interesting. <laughs> um, but I think there's a, a broader perspective issue that I have. And it's, and you see it in the dissent. There's an excellent dissent. Um, the, the decision is very lengthy, but it, it's worth a read for someone who wants to engage on these issues and understand where the Supreme Court is, where the mind of the Supreme Court is. But there is an excellent dissent by two of the nine judges. Um, and they say it in their introduction. But the perspective that the charter is meant to protect private citizens and private institutions from government action. That whole perspective seems to be lost a little, lost here. What, what seems to be happening is that there's this, what I'm going to call charter creep. And you can see it in other areas um, as well, beyond Trinity Western, in that the law society is seeing the charter as a tool to be used um, in the name of values or what they call shared values. So instead of protecting, um, the charter is supposed to act as a shield to protect individuals and it's becoming more of a sword. So that's one major issue that I personally see. Um, and when I say you see it elsewhere, I'll just, I don't want to go down too much of a no, rabbit no, trail. Please, but go, can, ahead. go ahead. Go um. ahead. I, I love to say the law is becoming a sword rather than a shield. So, um, I, I'm, on, I'm totally in agreement with you, but that's, I, I was going to save that to go down that rabbit hole a little bit later. But so continue oh, okay. with your. Well, we can go later or now. It's up to you. Uh, no, no, continue. We'll, we'll maybe at the end we can st- stray away from this case a little bit. And, but so for now, um, I, I, I'm I'm intrigued because I was I was actually reading the charter a little bit and. Um, I think there's a, a one-liner that I can at least read from Canada's guide to the charter that I think really plays into what you're saying. So it says, section one of the charter says the charter rights can be limited by other laws so long as those laws can be shown to be reasonable in a free and democratic society. And, and I think, you know, it's interesting because it demonstrates how our constitution is much different than the u.s constitution where you know essentially it says shall not be infringed on the things that they deem as rights whereas ours essentially says we can limit these rights only when it's deemed reasonable or convenient yeah well the problem with reasonable is that i would say it's a subjective definition so um Please continue, but I thought that was a good framing. Yeah, well, I mean, that's so that's what's called the section one is a limitation clause. Um, rights can only be limited when they can be demonstrably just 
the limits can be demonstrably justified in a free and democratic society. And there's a there's a legal test that has to be met in order for that to happen. Um, and it's a more, it's, it's called the Oaks test. And it's a fairly rigorous test. If the state is violating rights, the state bears the burden of demonstrating that it can justify all of these various stages of the test. Um, but often what happens is there's kind of this other test where, which is the one that was applied here. And it's basically, well, let's, what's the objective of the state actor here? And did they achieve that objective in a way that is reasonable? And although the test is supposed to be as stringent as the other one, it tends to incorporate a lot of elements that make it a little more subjective or substantially more uh, subjective, depending on your view. And they, so in this case, there's a lot of reference to values um, and charter values, which is another trend that you can see in Supreme Court and other court cases. Instead of referring to charter rights, which are delineated in the charter and have very clear, well, relatively clear parameters, and there's a lot of jurisprudence on those, you have this reference to charter values which are now said to kind of in charter values need to inform all these decisions that like the law society is making. Um, and there's just, there, there's a lot of um, ambiguity to what those are. Mm-hmm. Um, so would you say the rights are very objective, but this values term is very subjective? I, I personally think so. Um, and there's, there's a number of cases, there are lots, there's lots of case laws that actually are supportive of that position, although the majority in the Supreme Court doesn't agree. Mm-hmm. Um, the dissent speaks to the problematic nature of using charter values to interpret the extent and scope of charter rights. Okay. Um, so what they say, and this is very helpful, um, charter values are amorphous and undefined. Values like equality, justice, and dignity become rhetorical devices that allow courts to give particular moral judgments. Um, and that's that's two judges. That's a decision of two judges of the Supreme Court. So I'm I'm not alone in my in my skepticism and concern over the use of values terminology in uh, in court cases. Mm-hmm. So you're. Um... You're saying essentially two of the judges agree, two of the, the nine judges agree that this use of values uh, is problematic. Yes. Okay. Um, so I think we've, we've covered most of, you know, how we got here, how the decision was, you know, can be critiqued. Um, but is there any other aspect of the process that is unique or, or problematic? In, in your view. And by process, you mean like the, the sort of legal process or the um, way that the decision was, uh, the, the court came to its decision, like in its reason? Um, um, I, was, I was thinking along, like, along the lines of, you know, before the decision was made, the, the you know, collecting of information, the opinions that are being heard, um, the people involved, um, you know, as, you know, you mentioned that 
you know you're part of uh the canadian i i can't remember the, the specific um group or, or um christian legal fellowship yes that's you know yes. them getting involved right you know and because mm. and, they're not obviously not trinity western but they're let's mm-hmm. call it you know co-defendants or, or whatever the proper terminology is um you know all of that you know getting to the point where you know the everything is being deliberated and presented you know was there any other issues was there any other uniqueness to this case that is concerning yeah i mean <clears throat> it's christian legal fellowship was involved as an intervener and um that whole idea of interveners, I should maybe just briefly explain what that yes, means. Yes, so please. you have, okay, you have two, you generally speaking, you have two parties. Okay. In this case, you have Trinity Western and a law society, but given the nature of, uh, the issues at stake and the potential implications, uh, you know, as I mentioned at the outset, Christian legal fellowship, of course, had a major interest in becoming involved as, a collection of professionals, legal professionals, with a shared set of religious beliefs. Um, but Christian Legal Fellowship isn't the only group that was interested. Um, and as you as your case goes up to the Supreme Court, it attracts more groups. So the Supreme Court hearing attracted the highest number of interveners ever. It was a record number. <clears throat> um, and you would have groups like the Canadian Bar Association, the Canadian Council of Christian Charities, uh, the BC, there was the BC Humanist Association, the West Coast Women's Legal Education and Action Fund. You had um, an LGBTQ coalition. You had Outlaws, which is um, an Ontario-based group. Um, the Canadian Secular Alliance the Advocate Society, um, Catholic bishops. I mean, there were close to 30 groups that wanted to intervene in the, in the Supreme Court hearing. They all had felt they had something that was important for the court to hear in coming to their decision that was unique and relevant, but didn't um, ex- go down too many rabbit trails, to use the colloquial term, um, and take the court outside of the issues at stake. And so intervener interveners are at the mercy of the court. There's no obligation for them to say, yes, you can participate. Um, you just say, here's what we can offer. Please let us participate. And the court will just say yes or no. Okay. So in TWU at the Supreme Court, I, there were interveners at the lower courts, um, fewer. And I would say, if not even, then more in support of TWU um, at the lower courts. Um, at, at the Supreme Court, it became more in favor of the law society's position. Anyway, so initially only nine groups of close to 30 were granted intervener status. And very few, perhaps just one, came from a specifically LGBTQ perspective. Um, and about three or four days later, the chief justice at the time issued a new order, not only adding a second day of hearings, but allowing all of the groups that had applied to intervene, intervener status. Now, it's interesting because no group that was denied intervener status actually asked for a formal review. There was the media kerfuffle about it and some social media um, 
outcry on it, but not to a massive extent. But a new order was issued nonetheless, which is completely unprecedented. And then more unprecedented was that there was a press release on the topic. And uh, one of the chief, one of the um, judges gave an interview to the Globe and Mail on the topic. And so those three things, issuing a new order, doing a press release, and giving a media interview are just unheard of and left many sort of legal scholars in terms of Supreme Court uh, decision-making kind of scratching their head trying to figure out exactly why this happened based on what authority, what procedural um, rules had allowed this to happen. But it's pretty unclear, and it was definitely contributed to the uniqueness of the case, as to use your phrase from earlier, and also highlighting, I think, the importance of the case. Uh, and just how it's also just interesting to see how the court responded um, just in a way that you would never expect them to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, for my, I mean, I would say this is probably one of few, if not the only Supreme court decision that I can recall in like, like for Canada, I mean, I hear about it in the U S a little bit more, but in mm-hmm. Canada, I mean, I don't generally hear about Supreme Court decisions. And I understand that this is, you know, more of a current trend in terms of the issues at stake or, or falls into the current, you know, political sphere of, of what people care about. Um, so, I mean, it, to me, it seems that the Supreme Court of Canada was very interest in, interested in the public perception of their decision as much if not more of actually you know what is the rigor of law in making this decision or applying the rigor of law would well it's in- no i was just going to say it's interesting that you that you use the term public perception because they actually use that term in the decision um, when they're talking about one of the one of the justifications and one of the ways that the decision was reasonable, the decision for law societies, um, that the law societies made because they were upholding and maintaining the public interest, which they said necessarily includes upholding a positive public perception of the Mm. legal profession. So it's just interesting that you use that term because they also use that term. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, I find you know, public perception with regards to law, an, an interesting and problematic concept. And I mean, me and Darnell have intentions to just talk in a, in a future conversation, talk about the concept of church and state. And, and to me, there, I see a parallel between the idea of separating church and state with separating public perception or public, you know, collective beliefs. Um, but again, not to go down that rabbit trail because that's a whole other conversation. Um, I, I want to get, you know, transition a little bit away from this case, but also more on a, an aggregate level and, and obviously want to respect your time as well. We definitely appreciate the, the time you've given us. It's been very helpful um, and insightful. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, me being economically minded, I have a, a, a perception regarding the monopoly like power of of the law societies um 
and the private property kind of scenario of Trinity Western. Um, and so I'm curious on your view from a legal perspective about the exclusionary power of Trinity Western with regards to a, a, a segment, let's call it students who wouldn't agree with the covenant versus the exclusionary power of the law society with regards to a school who has you know a belief system or a morality that although not infringing or being aggressive towards anyone but does have exclusion like yeah so i'm just curious on on your what your view is on contrasting those two I think I think it's a pretty fair analogy. Um, I mean, the whole point of the charter is to allow for diversity. Um, as w- one of the decisions from Nova Scotia said, the charter is not a blueprint for moral conformity. Mm-hmm. In fact, it's completely the opposite. It's to allow for diversity. And that means that there's going to be some dissonance and some maybe vociferous disagreement and potentially even people who would find, take personal offense from what, what someone else believes. But that is what happens in a pluralistic society. And that is what the charter is meant to protect. It's meant to protect overreach from the government, from the government imposing certain sets of values on private citizens, private organizations, schools, um, faith communities, And in 2001, the Supreme Court said to the Teachers College, we really don't see how it would be any different if you imposed this upon members of a certain church congregation. They just happen to be members of a school that is faith-based and expresses their faith through this community covenant. Um, You know, and you you see this in the dissent as well. Canadians are permitted to hold different sets of values. And, um... I think that people just hear this narrative, oh, this school is discriminating. And they fail to see that what's happening here is that the state is requiring a school to conform to its vision of what about what values it should be pursuing. And that's a problem. Mm-hmm. There needs to be a, a distinction there. Especially, like, I, I like that you brought up um, the pluralistic side of, of society. Um, I, I remember reading one of the articles where there was a quote from someone from the Canadian Constitution Foundation, uh, and they were essentially using very, very similar terminology, if not almost the same thing, where essentially they, the decision turns the charter on its head with regards mm-hmm. to the pluralistic aspect of, of Canada. Um, and, and conformity of ideology um, is something that, that has, I don't know, giving me weird deja vus to... to history not so distant with regards to mm-hmm. you know uh nazi and, and stuff like that where it's i mean obviously this isn't the same but it's similar in the the desire to have a collective view and and op- oppress those that uh disagree yeah and i mean you know the bc court of appeal recognized that and they have this, they have some beautiful language in their decision and what they say in their concluding thoughts or the the concluding remarks, I should say, is that 
a well, what ha- what's happening here is that a well-intentioned majority um, in the name acting in the name of tolerance and liberalism can, if unchecked, impose its views on the minority in a manner that is itself intolerant and illiberal. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that it that's a great summary um, of what ha- what's happening here. And and to come back to you know just briefly before we we wrap up, um, you know I think. The, the stuff that we've finished on really kind of expounds or, or, or breaks down a little bit of, of why you said the law is being used like a sword. Instead of a shield. Would, would you agree? Or is there more that you would add to that, that, that idea? Well, I mean, again, I, I certainly, I certainly think that it's becoming more of a sword than a shield. Um, and then there's also this, the sword and the shield, and then another theme I think you can see um, in this case and other cases is just the whole idea of the public square and what is required in order to participate within the public square mm-hmm. um, and the requirements that you see. I mean, you can see this in Trinity Western. You can see this in Canada Summer Jobs. You can see this in, um, there's some, I won't get into it, but in Ontario and doctors and some of their policies, you're kind of seeing it there. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's new admission criteria to participate in the public square. And it's a question of who gets to define what those are. Are we allowing the charter to, to say, well, we're going to allow all of these different views because they're charter protected to be able to come and participate. Or are we going to give state authorities the ability to assess and vet some of those values before you can enter the public square? Mm-hmm. Yeah. We, we just did a, a podcast on summer jobs and, and the ideology test that they've brought in. Um, mm-hmm. so I, I think we definitely are in agreement with you on that, that there's a concerning trend, um, with regards to the use of law as a sword, um, mm-hmm. from a perspective of, of cutting people out rather than a shield kind of protecting people from being excluded. Yeah. And there's just this idea, um, allow giving license to, or accrediting, doesn't mean that the state is endorsing or um, holding one value up to the exclusion of others. It's recognizing that the charter does protect diversity and that the the state is taking a neutral position and um, allowing the charter to do its work. They're not the ones to police uh, this diversity. Um, And so you definitely see more of that Pro, what they what they think is a proactive enforcement of charter values, but they're defining them and limiting them inappropriately. Yep. I'm drawing a really bad parallel, but I think for <laughs> um, personal perspectives, it's like we're really interested in diversity of ideas and and you know walking through ideas and and contrasting and comparing and and representing the other side as strong as possible. It's kind of like drawing the parallel of endorsing where it's like if i retweet retweet something it doesn't mean that i necessarily agree with it it just means it's something that i personally think should be in the public sphere of conversation um i know as i said a very bad parallel but i just look at it in my personal life i don't hold that view that just because i'm putting something on the public stage or allowing it on my you know platform of distribution means that i necessarily agree exactly yeah well we want to thank you for your time Nina. we really really appreciate it and hopefully in the future we can have you on the show 
uh, to cover other topics. Would that be okay? Well, sure. Thank you guys so much. It's, it's been great. Um, I appreciate your interest in the issue and hope that it's been somewhat helpful just flushing out some of the background and then some of the uh, main issues moving forward. Okay. And uh, for the audience, how could they get in touch with you? Um, if they want to get in touch with me, um, they can follow me on Twitter, just my name, Dina Warren, or website is warrenlegal.ca. And we'll we'll put a, a link to those in our, our show notes page. So. Great. Thanks. Thank you again. I know we went over time a little bit and definitely appreciate it. All right. No problem. Thanks, guys. All right. Thank you, Dina. Thank you. Have a good day. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. But you heard me. Does that make sense? Madden and Mitchell Media.